Cesar Beccaria. Every punishment which does not arise from absolute necessity, says the great Montesquieu, is tyrannical. A proposition which may be made more general thus, every act of authority of one man over another for which there is not an absolute necessity is tyrannical. Jeremy Bentham. Every law is an infraction of liberty. Henri de Saint-Simon. We regard society as the ensemble and union of men engaged in useful work. We can conceive of no other kind of society. Charles Fourier. When the wage-earning classes are poor, their independence is as fragile as a house without foundations. The free man who lacks wealth immediately sinks back under the yoke of the rich. Robert Owen. The working classes may be injuriously degraded and oppressed in three ways. First, when they are neglected in infancy. Second, when they are overworked by their employer and are thus rendered incompetent from ignorance to make a good use of high wages when they can procure them. Third, when they are paid low wages for their labor. John Stuart Mill. A state which dwarfs its men in order that they may be more docile instruments in its hands, even for beneficial purposes, will find that with small men, no great thing can really be accomplished. Karl Marx. The history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggles. Free man and slave, patrician and plebeian, lord and serf, guildmaster and journeyman, in a word, oppressor and oppressed, stood in constant opposition to one another, carried on in an uninterrupted, now hidden, now open fight that each time ended, either in the revolutionary reconstitution of society at large or in the common ruin of the contending classes. Mikhail Bakunin. When the people are being beaten with a stick, they are not much happier if it is called the people's stick. Pierre-Joseph Proudhon. Property is theft. Peter Kropotkin. The working people cannot purchase with their wages the wealth which they have produced. Rosa Luxemburg. Those who do not move do not notice their chains. Emma Goldman. Ask for work. If they don't give you work, ask for bread. If they do not give you work or bread, then take bread. Karl Kautsky. As things stand today, capitalist civilization cannot continue. We must either move forward into socialism or fall back into barbarism. And Eugene V. Debs. I do not want you to follow me or anyone else. If you're looking for a Moses to lead you out of this capitalist wilderness, you will stay right where you are. I would not lead you into the promised land if I could, because if I led you in, someone else would lead you out. Is there a through line to be found in all that we've covered? There are scholars far more entrenched in the social sciences who have considered this very question. So who am I to go down this path? Who are we? At the outset, we talked about the changing river, how the exchange of ideas impacted the great thinkers, and how these ideas came to shape policy and influence the course of history. Circumstances never remain the same, no matter how fundamental our natures may be. But the quest for insight into the human condition has always been there. So while I know in my heart there are countless works that probe the significant questions of our time in more meaningful ways, we've accomplished something profound, albeit marginal. We've created a safe space to explore ideas in a contemporary setting. We have a community of engaged audience members willing to come on this journey to see if pieces of it resonate with your individual experiences. The task was straightforward enough, understanding socialism. But the journey revealed more questions than answers. The implication behind the task was to see whether or not we could find pieces of useful information to apply to current systems of social, political, and economic governance. But this too was frustrated by the very definition of socialism. 
recall that we began by stating that socialism is fundamentally a critique of capitalism. And given that capitalism remains the dominant system that governs the global economy and has therefore co-opted social structures and political systems, it begs the following question. Does socialism even matter? Listen to us talk, we're a world-renowned. Download our podcast. Where you will consume all the doom and gloom from 99 and Max. Many sound design always inspires to your heart's desire. Hey man, you know there's nothing that we lack. Past your ears into your mind, through the heart, all the facts. On your podcasting app comes a basic white man with a rusty microphone in his red right hand. And Fucking the Republic is brought to you by overcaffeinated members Alphine Flash, Asshole, Brie X, Cindy S, David MJ, Goat, Glenn, G Wookie of Ohio, Eric Wagner 101, Joa, Cringy, Marco F, Maria from PR, Matthew, and Michelle H. Revolutionary Russia, 1917. H.L. Mencken, The Baltimore Evening Sun, January 14, 1935. Quote, All the produce of their labor, over and above subsistence far more suitable to rats than to men, has gone into the coffers of the Bolsheviki. Thus, one of the fundamental principles of Marxism has been reduced to absurdity in the house of its professed disciples. The modern world could no more get along without accumulated capital than it could get along without police or paved streets. The greatest change imaginable is simply the change that has occurred in Russia, a transfer of capital from private owners to professional politicians." End quote. It must have felt like quite the oversight, a five-part series that ended at the start of World War I? I think it's fair to say that most casual political observers and those who remember anything from high school social studies have a vague notion of Marx. A few things happen, Lenin takes over Europe, and communism is born. The point of ending where we did is that I believe any authentic movement toward socialism ended with World War I, just prior to the Russian Revolution. But it's also accurate to suggest that the revolution may not have come about were it not for the Great War. So let's square these ideas before we continue with our takeaways from the series and go through a quick timeline of Russian history in the late 1800s and early 1900s. I'm going to mix some notes from an old college text called Revolutionary Russia with a few other resources to quickly run through everything. No deep dives, just surface level. 1881. The assassination of Tsar Alexander II kicked off a wave of pogroms throughout the Russian Empire, beginning in present-day Ukraine. This in turn led to the mass migration of Eastern European Jews over the next several decades. Economically and politically, Russia set about playing catch up with the rapidly industrializing nations throughout Europe. It entered into a pact with France in response to German unification, and in 1891, it began construction on the Trans-Siberian Railroad, which remains the largest railway in the world. In 1896, Tsar Nicholas II took over and continued to pursue eastward expansion, building a Russian port in China in 1898. But trouble was brewing in this part of the world. Japan, Germany, Russia, and the United States, among others, were all looking to seize power in disparate parts of China. Then, in 1900, the Boxer Rebellion in China erupted, 
partly in response to foreign interference in the region. This set Russia on a collision course with not only the Chinese, but with an increasingly militarized Japan, who ultimately defeated Russia in the Russo-Japanese War in 1904. It was a devastating defeat that crushed the morale of the Russian people. The Russian Empire was in turmoil, and revolution was in the air. Amidst an embarrassing treaty with Japan negotiated by Theodore Roosevelt, which earned Teddy the Nobel Peace Prize, the Russian people take to the streets. In St. Petersburg, a peaceful protest turned deadly when protesters were murdered in what became known as Bloody Sunday. Russian sailors aboard the battleship Potemkin revolted in June of the same year. Throughout the year, revolutionaries attempted to overthrow the government in what Vladimir Lenin called a dress rehearsal for the ultimate socialist revolution. In 1906, a new constitution was written, establishing the Duma. Pyotr Stolypin took over as prime minister, supplanting the governing duties of the Tsar, and a new reign of terror, coined Stolypin's necktie, was ushered in. Stolypin was assassinated in 1911, and Tsar Nicholas reasserted his rule, though under the mysterious counsel of the infamous Rasputin. Though Russia initially wanted to stay out of the burgeoning conflict in Europe, fate had other plans. Russia entered the Great War and sustained enormous casualties, sparking even more unrest among the peasants sent to fight for their country. From exile, revolutionaries Vladimir Lenin and Leon Trotsky began plotting another revolution. In 1916, Rasputin was killed. In 1917, uprisings among the military and protests in the street forced Tsar Nicholas to abdicate his post. The already fragile provisional government failed, and under Trotsky's masterful hand, the Bolsheviks rode to power in a bloodless coup, promising peace, land, and bread to a wary Russian population ready for permanent change. Tsarist rule was officially dead in Russia, and the Bolshevik revolution succeeded where all other socialist revolutions had fallen short. From revolutionary Russia, quote, Trotsky's role in the October Revolution became central. He emerged as the chief inspirer, organizer, and manager of the insurrection. Already a legendary figure because of his activity in the revolution of 1905, he was a rousing orator and crowd pleaser. The fact is that Trotsky did a superb job in timing and administering the actual seizure of power, whereas Lenin provided the overall theory and the iron will needed to see it through." End quote. During the war, Germany did whatever it could to foment revolution in Russia and sow chaos. In fact, they did the same to the British by financing revolutionary activities in Ireland. In the end, the conditions were ripe in Russia for wholesale change. A disillusioned military, impoverished peasantry, anger among the industrialists who blamed Stolypin and the bureaucrats for getting them into the war, incredulity among the citizens who blamed Stolypin, Tsar Nicholas, Rasputin, anyone in a position of power. Again, revolutionary Russia. Quote, only an ideology and an unbending government were needed to set off the explosion. The Tsarist system supplied the latter, and Karl Marx supplied the former, end quote. But for as much as Russian communist history has been written opportunistically by both Russian and American powers over the past century, it's perhaps more accurate to suggest that the Bolsheviks came to power less under a mandate and more because they were in the right place at the right time. As Joseph Schumpeter wrote, quote, there is no reason for assuming that, but for the strain of the world war put upon the social fabric, the Russian monarchy would have failed to transform itself peacefully and successfully under the influence of, and in step with, the economic development of the country, end quote. This strikes at the heart of revolutionary theory with the benefit of hindsight. 
why World War I was likely more responsible for the Russian Revolution than Marxist and socialist movements. Capitalism has been able to incorporate just enough policies to placate the masses at every turn, except under the most extreme circumstances. But the war not only starved millions, it starved capitalism of the oxygen it needed to breathe. As Schumpeter also points out, if not for the Great War, Russia would likely have continued to pursue industrialization and democratic reform. The provisional government would have had time to mature, and so would capitalism. But Russia was weak. It was weak prior to the war relative to its neighbors. It hadn't yet completed the industrial capitalist phase of its development, as Marx theorized. And now millions were dead from the war, a pandemic, and famine. But Lenin and Trotsky were nothing if not prepared. While it might not have been the place they dreamed revolution would occur, they were certainly ready to seize power when the opportunity presented itself. To them, socialism was a global revolution, so if Russia was home base, so be it. Thus, they immediately went to work to establish Soviets throughout Russia and bring workers into their revolution. From Revolutionary Russia, quote, Soviets were formed all over Russia, from districts within cities to remote villages. Soldiers elected committees to represent their interests, and workers formed factory committees, trade unions, and armed militia to see to their needs and to defend the gains the revolution had brought them. These structures represented a kind of direct democracy and were consciously erected to better their lot and protect the interests of the group involved. But could they form the basis for a national consensus and a Russian-wide system? End quote. The answer to this question remains unanswered. Not because a Russian-wide system that ultimately consumed most of Eastern Europe didn't come to pass, but because there was nothing resembling a consensus. Think of the words of our theorists. Bakunin, quote, When the people are being beaten with a stick, they are not much happier if it is called the people's stick. Debs, quote, I would not lead you into the promised land if I could, because if I led you in, someone else would lead you out, end quote. Bakaria, quote, every act of authority of one man over another, for which there is not an absolute necessity, is tyrannical, end quote. Lenin and Trotsky led the Russian people to the promised land, and Joseph Stalin led them into hell. The circumstances may have been such that revolution was at hand, but the people weren't ready to come along. They were simply tired and demoralized. The same exhaustion and embarrassment that infected the German people after the war and throughout the Great Depression that paved the way for the Nazi party. Thus, the people's stick was wielded by the state apparatus of the Bolsheviks under the murderous hand of Stalin for the next half century, and the people suffered under the yoke of tyranny, a tyranny that bore no resemblance to the Marxist theory it purportedly credited for its formation. Here's Margaret Macmillan from The War That Ended Peace. Quote, When we look back at the years before 1914, we can see the birth of our modern world, but we should also recognize the persistence and force of older ways of thinking and being. Millions of Europeans, for example, still lived in the same rural communities and in the same manner as their ancestors. Hierarchy and knowing one's place in it, respect for authority, belief in God, still shaped the way in which Europeans moved through their lives. Indeed, without the persistence of such values, it's hard to imagine how so many Europeans could have gone off willingly to war in 1914. After the war, the river was changed and tinged with blood, and so too were those who waded through it. UNFTR is also sponsored by overcaffeinated members Nathan E., Nathan Surst, Nettie Hugger One, 
PDEM, Rob Nasby, Rodrigo G, Ryan F, Snell Powered, Sultan, Terry C, The Younger PDX Squatch, Video N Jalix, W Jeremy D, and The Memory of Nettie McGee. Inputs, Conditions, and Conclusions. Okay, time to riff, to dispense with the formality of structure. While I'm framing this as an epilogue to our series, it's more of a conversation starter, an invitation to dialogue. From day one of this podcast, we set out to tackle difficult subjects and to make sense of the world. The idea behind this series was to get close to the theories that inspire hope among those who are offended by the capitalist system and concerned for the trajectory of inequality and our race toward climate disaster. It's common among leftists to call for radical change to our systems and our behaviors. Black Lives Matter, trans activism, the Me Too movement, Occupy, cultural movements seeking to upend harmful norms and systemic oppression. Self-proclaimed leftist writer Freddie DeBoer has been in my algorithm lately, criticizing such movements claiming a lack of organization combined with misguided messaging have done little to affect change. So this is the guy that I was ranting about in the AOC episode who published the article saying that she was just a regular old Democrat now. Now, what's interesting about DeBoer's critique is that he criticizes AOC on the one hand for fighting within the system and then chastises movements outside of the political system for not being political enough. And so I think he's kind of missing the point, a few of them, in fact. Now, I may have been inclined to jive with DeBoer prior to putting this series together. I might have looked at his work as a bitter pill, tough talk that we need to have, but I've come to see things a little differently now. Listening closely to the echoes of history has a way of doing that. What's missing from his critique and the critique among many leftists today, again, speaking for myself only here, is an acknowledgement of the importance of class consciousness. It's a fundamental ingredient of change. It's what was missing from Robert Owen's New Harmony, but what was present during the Paris Commune. It's what existed in France and Germany prior to the Great War, but was absent in Russia. This lack of consciousness allowed the peasant class in Russia to go from feudal industrial rule to state-sponsored socialist rule, and a brutal one at that. A mere changing of the bureaucratic guard. The same consciousness that gave rise to a professional political class in Germany and a revolutionary labor movement in France, both of which were stunted by the onset of war and the rise of nationalism. That pre-war mentality that Macmillan spoke of had an element of class consciousness threaded throughout the disparate movements in Europe but this consciousness disappeared in a wave of nationalism that presaged the war. And from the ashes of war, it was capitalism that offered the promise of both nationalistic identity and economic recovery. The bitterness among nations lingered and prevented the working classes from each country from aligning. Recall the two pillars of Marxist belief, internationalism and the abolition of private property in the means of production. Lenin and Trotsky differed slightly on the approach to internationalizing Bolshevik success, but they were in agreement that the Marxist vision of socialism to which they adhered required it to spread beyond Russia. They needed trading partners and allies. After Lenin's death and Trotsky's expulsion, Stalin would reverse course on this idea and cherry-pick Lenin's words out of context to promote the idea of socialism in one country, which was just another form of authoritarianism. So that's the first lesson. Class consciousness is required to mobilize the masses in a coordinated movement toward a specific goal. But lesson number two is mass mobilization also requires 
an organizing framework and structural means to achieve these ends. As Michael Harrington writes in Socialism Past and Future, quote, Marx and Engels turned toward what can only be called democratic socialism was a critically important deepening of the idea of socialism itself. The utopians had not been Democrats, even if their followers were, and their projections of the future, with their vision of an organic and non-political transition to the new society, thus omitted the essential, the democratic socialization of a more and more complex economy from below, end quote. So toward the end of their collaboration and in Engels' work after Marx's death, we see the intellectual baton passed to those who concern themselves with the functional aspects of revolution. In fact, one of the crucial elements missing in many of the forums involving Marxist theory is a discussion about democracy. One of the more successful elements of the Paris Commune, as an example, was the democratization of the bureaucratic apparatus. Every role had to be earned through democratic means. No appointments to key positions, total representation. It's one of the elements of the U.S. political system that most intrigued the Marxists and syndicalists, though they recognized the perils of a U.S. system that was architected around class and race. But we have to remember, at this time, democracy was still relatively new in Europe, and parliamentary democracies were often still conjoined with the church or monarchies. So Harrington's point is pretty well taken here. The complexity of economic systems under capitalism and the fragmentation of the working classes meant that political systems had to mature in order to keep pace. Moving from capitalism to socialism had to be something more than organic. Thus, democratic institutions were required to facilitate growth, right? So to constrain capitalism for sure, yes, but also to involve the lower classes lest they be left behind under state-sponsored capitalism or state-sponsored socialism. So these are the first two foundational conditions, class consciousness and democratic structures and processes that allow the working class to wrest power from the elites. So I think that these are fairly obvious, it's just that we don't say these things out loud. Now, for the more controversial concepts. One of our listeners remarked early on that it sounded like I was promoting the concept of a vanguard class of intellectuals in the way that Lenin prescribed. In fact, here's how Lenin described it in his seminal text, What is to be Done? Quote, Class political consciousness can be brought to the workers only from without, that is, only from outside the economic struggle, from outside the sphere of relations between workers and employers. The sphere from which alone it is possible to obtain this knowledge is the sphere of relationships of all classes and strata to the state and the government, the sphere of the interrelations between all classes. For that reason, the reply to the question as to what must be done to bring political knowledge to the workers cannot be merely the answer with which, in majority of cases, the practical workers, especially those inclined towards economism, mostly content themselves, namely, to go among the workers. To bring political knowledge to the workers, the Social Democrats must go among all classes of the population. They must dispatch units of their army in all directions, end quote. So Lenin is talking about equipping a select group of workers to rise above their status, to, quote, raise the amateurs to the level of revolutionaries, as he put it. This class, or this party, would proselytize the gospel of Marx and teach the proletariat and the lumpered proletariat alike the ways of revolution. Why? Because he knew 
that the peasants spread across the vast expanse of Russia still lived in the same feudal, pre-modernist conditions their ancestors had, like Margaret Macmillan was talking about, right? So Lenin was among those who hoped to someday bring socialism to Russia. It didn't occur to him or his contemporaries that the revolution would actually begin there. So I responded to the listener at the time with an equivocation. I agree conceptually with an organized group or professional political class that exists to raise the consciousness of the working class. Those are the progressives in, in the House caucus that I'm talking about, needing to get more progressives into the Senate. But I wanted to get through the series to draw attention more to a group like the Fabians. Now, important side note here, I'm not lionizing the Fabians. The society held a few very questionable views early on, and the more recent incarnation of the society is just a watered-down version that lacks heart. I mean, Tony Blair was like a, an integral member of it, if that tells you anything. But at the time, in the UK, they played an important role in supporting the labor movement. They advocated for women's rights, minimum wage, and universal health care. These were the domestic policy areas over which they exerted a quiet and outsized influence. Now that said, their ideas around imperialism were very shitty. Anyway, the point is, the UK was a more developed capitalist economy that had already rid itself of monarchical rule in day-to-day -day governance and separated church from state. It was far ahead in its industrialization journey and the party system was deeply entrenched, much as it is today in the United States. And yet many of the most important reforms that came to pass that involved social welfare and social justice were promoted from within by the Fabians. That's why it's important to understand both the goals of a movement, but also the circumstances under which you're operating in order to achieve them. When we think about the composition of class, we're presented with a different challenge than most of the previous eras that we've covered. As I pointed out in our recent labor episode, one of the challenges is in raising the consciousness of the working class when there is no real working class identity anymore. One might see themselves as poor, middle class, upper middle class, rich or wealthy, but you rarely hear people self-identify as, quote, working class, as much as they identify with maybe their occupation or their political identity. Working class seems almost anachronistic, and the growth of the independent workforce Freelancers, gig workers, part-timers, and the rise of remote work in the service sector has driven us further apart from collective identities. So if we think about the term itself, it implies that the identity of the largest segment of the population is tied to the concept and meaning of work. Labor is not simply the means, but it's the ends as well. It's all-consuming. But our identities today transcend our individual and collective labor. We've advanced beyond identifying by the trade in which we toil. Even the most current data show that the average American will hold more than 12 jobs in their lifetime. This is a fundamental shift that must be taken into account. We may be no closer to understanding why we're here or the meaning of life, but we know it exists beyond what we do to put bread on the table. So rather than try to stuff ourselves back into a box, maybe it's time to evaluate new systems that incorporate the understanding that abundance now affords us the opportunity to be more than our work, to lean into freedom of expression. The real battle isn't over the soul of the nation, as Biden often promoted during his campaign. It's between oligarchy and everyone else. Our job is to raise consciousness of this condition and to demonstrate ways in which the masses can seize power 
and harness the markets before they do further harm to us and to the planet. That's the framing that Occupy tapped into, the 1% versus the 99%. Occupy raised the consciousness of the 99%, but the prescriptions for seizing power were too amorphous and maybe too daunting. But it gave us a starting point to frame a movement. In many ways, it's the opposite of objectivism, which sought to paint collectivists as takers. This is the ultimate snow job, by the way a concept adopted and promoted by the bizarro wing of modern libertarianism and free market idealism. That each human is some autonomous creative being whose needs supersede all others, and anyone who seeks to share in societal gains is somehow a pariah. That we, the masses, we're the takers. But it's the capitalist class, they're the takers. The 1% are the takers. The rest of us are the real producers, the makers. The oligarchs and capitalists are the takers, and the greatest magic trick of all has been convincing everyone else that the opposite is true. I mean, liberals wonder aloud how a charlatan like Trump can convince tens of millions of people that he represents the producer class, the workers of the nation, and that he stands for them. I mean, this is a guy, a reality star, whose motto was, you're fired, and somehow that appeals to workers. But he didn't invent this con. He's the product of decades of propaganda from Ayn Rand and Milton Friedman to Bill Clinton and Larry Summers, who tell us that the way to take care of the many is to put more power into the hands of the few. Now, in terms of organizing movements, one belief I've held that is categorically wrong is that religion should play no role in galvanizing the masses. I mean, I call myself agnostic in polite company, but I'm actually an atheist. And thus, I've allowed my disdain for religion to color my view of its role in the world. How can I promote working within a democratic system to affect change while criticizing anyone who looks to their faith for guidance outside of it? Doing so has created a spiritual vacuum that provided an opening for the worst religious actors to wield power inside the system. Any proper movement would lift up positive voices from all corners of life and society. We expend so much energy sneering at the folks in flyover country, and I'm including myself in this, right? I mean, laughing at those with deeply held religious convictions, condemning the professional managerial class, and so on. It's why members of these groups are so hostile to liberals whose pathos looks like false piety. It's not enough to say, we have a common enemy, it's the 1%. This is a hollow pronouncement if we cannot first find common ground, if we cannot first raise consciousness. Now, we've done a better job lifting up the voices of the marginalized, and that's important. But we must take care not to cast aside the very real feelings of those who aren't traditionally marginalized, but are also being left behind. We have a planet to save and children to protect. Can we challenge ourselves on the left to construct a model for authentic change without being too moralistic? The capitalists have all the levers of change. They've purchased the political system, they control the information we consume and therefore the narrative. They own the means of production and subsume all of the gains. And still they want more. Because that is the nature of capitalism. So let's look at the conditions in totality. Raising class consciousness, expanding democratic processes into all systems, Installing a dedicated class of socially conscious bureaucrats to perform the important yet mundane work of systemic change. Solidarity between groups that have been inculcated by the capitalist class to despise one another on false grounds. And to acknowledge that the character and spirit among U.S. citizens 
is distinct from other cultures. Now, this is hard. This is important. We can learn from other examples and learn from history, but our movement must be distinct. It's folly to believe that we're going to exercise the demon of American individualism. So the key is to build upon it and demonstrate how the capitalist class is suppressing the rugged frontier spirit of American individualism by rigging the system to favor the elites. That's why the cooperative model of work makes so much sense. Why it's different from the new Democrat free market ideas espoused for the past 50 years. Our job is to teach people that they can be free within a collectivist system. This requires a great amount of political skill and careful communication. If we stop fighting on the ground to elect progressives who can change the tenor of discussions in government and set new priorities, choosing instead to shout at the rain from outside the halls of power, we're leaving power to its own devices, and they will choose wrong every time. Now, intellectually, we know that we have to reduce nationalistic tensions. We need to forge cooperative, measurable, and ironclad hemispheric goals to reforest, reduce poverty, decarbonize, and demilitarize. These things require totally new playbooks because the world has changed. But the existing power structure, absent progressive voices, has only the playbooks of old to reference, playbooks that get us into conflicts and war. As Chris Hedges writes, quote, war is a force that gives us meaning. See, going to war is easy. Building a cooperative peace that provides pathways to sustainability and lifts people out of poverty, now that's hard. It's tempting to say that the capitalist epoch is coming to an end, but that might signify that it's the final epoch for us all. There's so much that socialism, syndicalism, anarchism, and Marxism can teach us about how we got here. But the worst fears the great thinkers held regarding capitalism have long been realized. So new thinking is required if we're literally going to save our species. And given where we are in world history, the United States will either lead the way in changing the world, or we're going to drag everyone down with us. Such is the outsized nature of our economy, our might, and our influence. And while that might smack of ethnocentrism, it's simply a statement of fact. Can we think like Bakunin and, quote, cleave to no system? Can we channel the vision of Rosa Luxemburg and get people to notice their chains? To build a system for tomorrow, we'll have to borrow elements from the past and incorporate them into new visions. It's not enough to want to revive some strict interpretation of Marxism. So to paraphrase the modern prophet Clemenza, leave the dogma, take the lessons. For example, saving the planet may require that we nationalize certain industries. This concept is so anathema to our ideals that doing it abruptly would inspire revolt. But as we've said before, there isn't a single industry that wasn't already built by the public sphere. A widespread movement to worker cooperatives might seem like an affront to the capitalist system, but Mondragon has proven that it can compete in a global marketplace while also allowing for worker ownership and agency. Would global sustainability be achieved better through collaborative yet competitive progress with China or by threatening another world war? Can we look at the Scandinavian models of social welfare reforms without sacrificing our individualistic identity as Americans? Can we recognize that democracy with socialist structures mitigate inequality and allow for full expression of civil liberties? Can we allow ourselves to drop the absolutism of equality to see that even Marx acknowledge the sliding scale of labor value. 
See, he wasn't a proponent of absolute equality. He favored the equitable access to opportunity and surplus gains in proportion to one's needs. Now, these are incredibly complex questions that rely upon us all to raise class consciousness. Absent such consciousness, we risk the last part of this whole equation to catch us off guard. That catalyzing event that spurs revolutionary change, and it will happen because it always does. And it's impossible to predict. The world was never the same after the world wars, after 9-11, and even more recently after the financial collapse or the election of Donald Trump. These moments impact the way we see ourselves and those who are prepared to act in these moments take hold of the narrative and the reins of power. The fascists after World War I, the capitalists after World War II, the free market libertarians after the stagflation crisis of the 70s, the neocons after 9-11, each time moving further away from anything the theorists in this series ever imagined. Each time changing the river, each time changing us. No answers on fuckers, just questions. But better ones as we go along this journey together to find common ground, meet people where they are, and prepare for what comes next. It's the end of the episode where we used to do show notes. Now we just talk through a few things. Reflect on what was said or what we should have done instead. Oh, post-show musings. It's the end of the episode where we, you know, used to do show notes. Congratulations, you've made it to the end of Socialism Girl Summer. Thank you. Hey, what's a snow job? Con job, snow job. I never heard that. No? Mm-mm. Another phrase. To I'm learning. In my boomer lexicon. That doesn't mean you're a boomer. Just yeah. I might not know things sometimes. I know that's like a wild admission for me to make, but there are things I don't know. So um, a couple of listeners, but also some people uh, that I love who love me very dearly, have suggested that um, I may have spent the summer just shedding listeners with this series. <laughs> Now, it's possible, but I have to say, this is probably my favorite one of... Mm. You say that after every series we do. No, not series. I was going to say my, my favorite learning journey that I've gone on. So all of these things that just sort of rattled around or I'd read about them or, you know, maybe you catch a college text or you take a class here and there or, you just don't think about it critically and deeply. These are just like figures from the past, like trying to bring them alive and and just put yourself in that situation to me was so like wonderful and, and instructive. I, I missed a lot along the way. There's no question that I, I there were things that normally we would have been talking about or what have you. But, you know, I just felt it was important to just pause and, and kind of go back to school a little bit be like, you know, am I am I qualified to even be talking about half the shit that we're talking about? Because how do you do that without historical context? So, I don't know. So, we may have lost some people. They'll come the back. Way. I hope so. I think that's the mix. Sometimes, you know, you have you have a long historical series and then you got the quick little bites in there that are topical. 
Some people will probably listen to those, and some people will only listen to the long ones, but that's what makes the listener base diverse. Yes, I mean, I, I had a thousand things, obviously, that um, I forget what this clocked in at, but uh, I had about double the word count for when I started on the epilogue to just of shit that I learned along the way. Because what I kept doing as I was writing the other episodes was I would I would take a piece that would be like, oh, not yet, but this is a good takeaway. And I'll stick that in my epilogue document, which I think was originally like uh, titled part four epilogue. And then mm-hmm. I was like, okay, part five. Okay, never mind, part six. But I felt like I was just, I was hammering some of the same points. And it was like, all right, so what, if we're going to really wrap this up, what's, what are the, what are those big takeaways? And, and so I hopefully I drove the point home that capitalism has won the battle, the war and everything in between to such an extent that, um, that we have to, we have to change it up. We're going to have to think differently. I think it's important because there are parallels to everything we talk about in that you know, bringing it together to the different movements, to what we need to do for climate change and for society. It's kind of the underlying structure. So I think it was important to cover. Yeah. I mean, Occupy was certainly my, my, my leftist political awakening. Yeah, you heart Occupy. I do. I was, it, it, uh, Occupy was my changing river. I mean, it, it changed me it changed. It actually changed me deeply. Like it, it affected me in in a way that uh, is is hard to describe. Sort of the, you know, red pill, blue pill moment that people talk about. That's kind of annoying. You were blue pilled. Was that blue pilled or red pill? I can I never think, keep it I straight. I think blue pill. So I think about the eyes. colors. Yes. Okay. Red stop. Blue. Open no, like, sky. Right. Like Republican Democrat. Oh, okay. That's blue. how I always thought about it. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's good. Yeah. So I was blue pilled and occupied, but. Uh, in a really magnificent way, because I would say that that was the other learning journey that I was on, because before that I was just reporting on stuff. I was just talking about stuff. I was writing about stuff. But then I would go, I would attend these lectures or I'd read these works by people that were just so utterly informed. And one of the things that gave me, now we've turned him into a more complicated figure, but one of the things that inspired me a long time ago was uh, watching a clip of Chomsky who was asked the question, does political being in the in the social sciences or political science require any sort of special skill or education or and he said absolutely not in fact it's the exact opposite all it takes is opening your eyes and being a, a curious person in the world asking questions and and self-study self-guidance and kind of making your own connections instead of just falling down doing your own research doing your own research exactly i saw that on the internet but i really took that to heart because you know, I studied business. I studied music. I just studied a whole bunch of different things. And this was always on in my interest and on the periphery. But um, seeing people today galvanized by politics because of the 24-7 media culture and just the just the reality TV show nature of it all these days is, is really dangerous. And at the same time, also provides an opening for this type of dialogue. So... You know, I do want people to come along the journey, but I want to learn from them as well, because that's why I say these are these are questions that in the beginning of a conversation. So just like, um, you know, I can take heat from Patrick McGee or or Bobby McGee perspective of, you know, what's going on on the other side of the pond or hear about what Elaine is talking about in Mexico, about the ongoing, uh, you know, colonialist behavior that the U.S. embraces. All of these little bits and pieces do make it in to everything that we look at and inspire new topics and new ideas. But it's helping me form a larger, you know, 
systematic approach to, to, to doing this show. So I hope that people treat this as the beginning of a conversation and that there are some takeaways. I mean, is there anything along the way that not surprised you, but like, where you're like, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll consider that differently as I look at events as they unfold in my life or, or my relationship to those type of events. I think it's more just how little I learned about this in the past. The only figure that I like knew was Marx and barely anything about him. They don't teach anything about this. At least I'm sure in higher education, if you specialize, like you're saying, but I, it was just a pure learning journey for me as well. So less application to life and more just like taking it in. All right, so I, I, I do have homework, not for you, because you do enough. <laughs> um, and Manny, feel please, please, if you have the time, uh, and I know we're on a tight deadline here, but if you have the time to punch in uh, from your world, how any of this has kind of shaped the way you look at it. I remember we had a, a, a pretty healthy, I don't think we did it on mic, but we had a pretty healthy conversation around the economics of racism episode and how you took certain takeaways from that and applied it to hip hop culture and, and hip hop movements outside of just music. But so if there's anything that struck you in a in, in a certain way throughout this series, other than rolling your eyes that I'm, I keep adding uh, sections to it, um, love to hear it. You know, yes, Max, uh, as I joked to you that I'm not sure why you're having such trouble figuring out how to unfuck the republic when I keep telling people hip hop can save America. But that's a whole nother podcast. Um, but that's half in jest. I named my show that and that's my philosophy of sorts. Because I feel that at its core, uh, hip hop culture has done something that few, if any, cultural, social, political movements have ever done in that it's truly, I think, the most inclusive, whether you call it a subculture culture, uh, gathering of folks globally, uh, where you will find this global movement. And, and as 99 says, I don't know any of this stuff. This is all new to me. It's never been my forte. But I do try to tie it into my own scholarship of sorts and, and figure out, well, if we're looking for a global movement that never was able to take hold, well, I know of one, uh, something that crosses over nationalist boundaries, religious boundaries, ethnic, racial, sometimes even ideological boundaries. We find that in hip hop, which is you know, something that Karis one uh, once so astutely observed uh, that in America, we all live by this uh, lofty ideal that Dr. King had, of course, that we would all be judged by the, not by the color of our skin, but by the content of our character. And he points out that nowhere in the world does that actually happen. It just doesn't happen. Not in America and not anywhere in the world. But you will find it in hip hop. It's one of these things that if you were to pick yourself up and drop yourself off in a, any other place in the world, you don't have to be of that place. You don't have to speak that language. You don't have to look like those folks. There's a commonality of culture here that actually does cross all borders. It's a very hopeful and optimistic and welcoming and inclusive and loving and caring culture. And so I do wonder when we pose some of these questions of how do we meet people where they are? How do we get, how can we get us all in the same room? I mean, hip hop does that and it's always done that. Are there some sort of key traits or characteristics in the DNA of hip hop that can be tapped into somehow? and applied to some of these ideas of having a multinational movement, a multicultural movement, and in this country, a 
multi-ideological coming together. You know, we see it in hip hop. And so these are the things I think about. And uh, I'm sure that I'll have more to say on that. Uh, and hopefully we can riff on some of these ideas together at some point. So, yeah. And to the unfuckers, especially those who framed the episode in the beginning in part one. And maybe, oh, actually, maybe what we can do, maybe that is our homework 99, is uh, we'll, we'll get all of the uh, emails from the people that were kind enough to uh, to tell us their how they define socialism mm -hmm. and see if they had the chance to, you know, partake in any of this series, if anything sort of changed their minds or opened their eyes, or if they have maybe a different definition coming out of this than in the beginning, because that might be pretty neat to cover Yeah, in uh, a postscript to the epilogue. <laughs> I won't do that, I promise, but it would be neat to do. And so I'm going to put all the series stuff behind us for the balance of the year. We've been working behind the scenes to nail down some some really good phone of friends. So we're excited to, to get those down, but also to get back into uh, just more punchy topical stuff. But you can, you can definitely bet that we're going to be weaving a lot of the, the work that we've done over the last couple of years through these episodes as we go forward and, and continue to push ourselves to, to learn and to grow. So are yeah. there any episodes that you wish you could go back and redo now having this foundation? Uh, yes. And as a matter of fact, at some point, probably going back to all the way back to Kane's mm. Bretton Woods and looking at some of looking more closely at some of Friedman's monetary policy, because my critique of Friedman, I'm steadfast in that critique in that he became more than an economist and he became a, the titular head of a of a very bad movement. And people were able to kind of, you know, build upon and co-opt his ideas that should have remained just in a classroom and apply them to different parts of the political and and social systems that that it didn't belong. You know, it became it really became a religion uh, instead of being a science. So I'd like to go back and revisit some of those texts. And I'd also like to see you know, we talked about Friedman responding to Keynes. Keynes was responding to the two wars, essentially. So how are we today to respond to, to what has transpired over, let's say, the last 20 years. And how are we to respond to Donald Trump? So I think about going back to, you know, how to talk to a Trump supporter. My ideas around that are definitely evolving, especially as we come closer to the next election. Um, the answer is just don't. <laughs> oh, man. I think I, I'm like increasingly terrified that we are going to elect him again. I can't. His strategy is unbelievable right now, even though he might be in jail. Um, and he really might be in jail. I mean, that could happen. But he doesn't show up to these debates and his numbers go up. I feel like <laughs> there's there's a, a group, though, that could be the answer. I mean, provided he doesn't get RNC nomination, like, let's say he doesn't. I mean, I guess in that case, but he's not going to run as an independent, would he? I could see him doing it and then making a deal to drop out. Okay. So, you know, with a full pardon across the board, oh. although I don't know if some of his activities may not, uh, I don't know if a full pardon actually would get him out of some of the indictments that he's under. Yeah. Because well, I was going to say, like, there are people I know who I think supported him then, but like post-presidency have... You know, they're not like Trump guys. They're just mm -hmm. like 
okay, that was something that happened. And they're not Democrats by any measure now, but they're more normal Republican, whatever that means. Mm -hmm. So I feel like there's that group of people who could, I I don't know. I mean, I, I guess, I guess it matters in the primary for those people. I know all of us got out of the prediction business because just being so just cataclysmically wrong in 2016, but um, that was the start of that was the bad the darkest timeline. Yeah, we just we better start you know figuring things out and reading the tea leaves, and I think that that's why my 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 ideas around how to how to actually speak to people on the right are, are beginning to change, and it does it does sort of revolve around consciousness and and raising consciousness. I I feel like we're gonna look back and be like, man, that Clyburn pandemic South Carolina mo- moment where you know, Biden surged ahead and all the Democrats, you know, fell in line behind him and endorsed him all around that same period. And he swept the South was just, I think it's going to, it could prove to be way more monumental because Bernie did a lot of kind of what I'm prescribing here in terms of approach. Like you don't really see Bernie talking about, he doesn't infuse race consciousness. He doesn't infuse religious discussions. He he will be critical of pa- structures of power. So if he's going to talk about, you know, Israel and Par- Palestine, he's going to be talking about the structures of power there and, uh, you know, asymmetrical responses from from power to the masses. A- and it does strike at kind of the heart of what Cornell West is talking about, about, well, that di- that didn't work. They didn't allow for it. And now we're just going to have to I have to take over the empire in order to tear the empire down. I get that. I totally get that. But again, I just I just feel like we're we're totally out of time because we're racing towards disaster in so many places. But let's end on a more positive note. So I I am hopeful. So right now I'm digging into uh, Michael Albert's participatory economics, looking at people that have have been thinking about this much much longer and much more deeply than I ever have or or could. Um, so I'm excited to see what comes out of that. And I do think that there are there are several green shoots of hope that are just beginning to pierce the ground right now that if we tend to them and, and if we water them, they they too can help raise class consciousness and 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 put us into, you know, potentially a better place. But it's a complex world, so we'll just keep we'll just keep fighting through. At any rate. I know we sound sleepy. I think it's the weather. Yeah. And and also sort of this uh exhaustion to the end of this series where uh, it's probably unhealthy to obsess about this stuff as much as I do, because I, I think it um, like I guarantee tomorrow I'll be sick. Like I like you just go and you go. And I feel like I've been on you know, I've just been like in fifth gear thinking about this stuff for several months. And and I just realized that that part's over and have to gear myself up for what is going to be a ridiculous year. But so I'm excited for it. I just I think it's time to sort of take a breath. Yeah. Don't forget you have like a family. <laughs> oh no, I didn't tell you. Oh, they left. They left months ago. They left months ago. Yeah, they're I'm sorry they're to hear this. that. Yeah, it's okay. It's, it's weird right. that it didn't come up like in day to day conversation. I'll find I find a new one, and I have them on uh, social media. Okay. So I kind of keep track of them. They look happy. They look thrilled. That's they, good. Yeah. I mean, I'm happy for them. Yeah, me too. Me too. They're great people. Yeah. What? I'm just kidding. If they left me, how could they be great? I hear you. Yeah. I hear you. Well, I mean, I don't blame them. Yeah. Right. I'm about to leave. Are you? Yeah. I got an invite to wherever they are, they're at. <laughs> the Bahamas. I can tell you exactly where they would be. Um, if I wasn't anchoring them down. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right, unfuckers. Thanks for coming along for the ride. Love to you all. Appreciate all your support. And uh, let's move on. As always, Unfucking the Republic is edited and arranged by sound design maestro, Manny Faces. My stomach growled. The show is lovingly produced by the Maybe Hungy 99. I'm Max. Hi, I'm Max. And I do the writing and the reading and the, the loss of the family. And uh, all original music is by Tom McGovern. Visit TomMcGovern.com. Check out all his funny shit. The end. <laughs>